You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk with diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Carol Hay. Carol is an associate professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Her academic work focuses on feminism, social and political philosophy, and sex and love. Her books include Kantianism, Liberalism and Feminism, Resistant Oppression, and the recent Think Like a Feminist, The Philosophy Behind the Movement. In this episode, we talk about feminism, what does it mean to think like a feminist, queer communities, dancing, and so much more. Hello, Carol. Welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? I am fabulous. Thank you so much for having me, Maisha. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on. I'm looking forward to this, this conversation. Carol, how did you get interested in philosophy? How did I get interested in philosophy? Um, this is a fun story. Okay, so okay. you need a little bit of background here. So um, you need to know that I um, I was a first-generation college student. Um, I grew up in a little tiny farming town in Saskatchewan of like 800 people, like no paved roads, no stuff. Is that America? Is that America? No, it's Canada. It's in Canada. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's right. No, I like to say it's like north of the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like lots of wheat fields, not a lot much, not, not going on. And I have a twin sister. Oh, and wow. yeah. And so, um, because it was such a small town, we were always in the same classroom and, um, she was known as the, uh, the, the, the good twin, the smart twin. She was a valedictorian and things like that. And I was the bad twin. <laughs> and so I was sort of always in her sort of academic shadow growing up. And then she and I went off to college, the first people in her family to go to college, went to this tiny little community college, just a little bit down the road. And, um, we were um, in, in most of the same classes there as well, except there was, um, uh, I, I took a philosophy class instead of a, a calculus class because I didn't want to take any more math. And I didn't even know what it was. It just literally fit in my schedule. Um, <laughs> and it was the first, basically the first time in my life that I'd ever been in a classroom without my sister. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so it just sort of gave me a chance to sort of, you know, I found my footing and it turns out I liked it. I mean, I think, I think I was sort of predisposed to it. I think I like, I, I liked the kind of, you know, argumentative thing. I liked, you know, I liked to be able to being able to sort of, you know, you know, pick apart arguments and things like that. So I think I was suited for it. I think I was, um, I think I had kind of like, I, I, I liked arguing. I liked the kind of, like, <laughs> okay. like, we didn't have like debate club or anything in my, in my school, but I think if we had, I probably would have liked it. Right. So, so I, I was sort of drawn to the kind of like argumentative nature of, um, of analytic philosophy. And I liked that you could sort of like, like you could argue about this stuff, but it wasn't, you know, like you didn't have to take it personally. Right. You could sort of, you know, you could disagree with someone and still um, have beers at the end of it. I really like that. And I still do. Did you major in it in college? Yeah, I did. So I went from that one uh, that one intro class, and I, I, I switched my major from biology to philosophy, and then I went on to get a master's uh, at Dalhousie. So this was I did my undergrad at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, uh, after that first year at a community college, and then I did a master's degree at Dalhousie, and that master's degree was just kind of like, well, I have a BA in philosophy. What the hell else? Like, am I, am I going to do it? <laughs> right. that or like, you know, plant trees in northern British Columbia? So, <laughs> so I got, so I did the master's degree, and, and then I think that was the point where I really sort of started taking this seriously as something that I could see myself doing with my with my life. And from there, yeah, went on to the PhD at Ohio State, and here I am. 
I'm always interested in how people came to their, their particular uh, research interests. Um, I have a theory. I'm not going to tell you what the theory is. Until you tell, tell, tell me. H- how did you come to your, your, your research area? So we got the story about the class. That's how you got, you know, that's how you fell in love with philosophy. But, but why did you end up writing about the things that you write about? So I think in part, it's, it's, it's a related answer. And it's that I think as, as a first-generation first college student, like I didn't come from an ac- academic background. Um, I didn't have anyone, like anyone sort of in my life telling me, like, these are the sorts of things that go together and these are the things that don't, right? So I came to philosophy and I came to feminism kind of at the same time. And I didn't know enough to know better that you weren't really supposed to be able to do those two things at the same time. Hmm. So um, I, I, I just sort of, I, and by the time I kind of realized, oh, wait, no, like this isn't a sort of solid research program. If you want, like you're going to have to do something else. Um, I was already sort of in deep enough, right? So I did my master's degree on kind of meta-ethics. I started grad school, or started uh, my PhD intending to do meta-ethics um, in part because at that, that point I, I got the memo that like, no, feminist philosophy cannot be your AOS. It cannot be your sort of central thing of focus, right? Um, and so I really sort of, I, I spent most of my grad school career planning on doing meta-ethics. But I had this one paper that I'd written for uh, Louise Anthony's uh, feminist theory class that um, I just I liked it more than anything else I was actually doing in my dissertation research or anything like that. Mm. And at some point, I just I don't know, I, I think many people kind of hit this point in grad school where you just kind of feel like, oh, like, you know, you've passed your comps, you're sort of in the weeds with your dissertation, and it just sucks and you can't really see the, see, see the way out of it. So I actually just like scrapped my dissertation. I just started over. And I completely switched my project after comps and decided, like, fuck it, I'm going to do feminist philosophy. And um, it ended up being, a, I think it was a pretty risky decision, um, especially right, because right. The, the kind of feminism that I wanted to do was I wanted to um, do analytic feminism and I wanted to use Kant. And so there was no one at Ohio State teaching Kant's practical philosophy. So I had to, I had to teach myself Kant mm. <laughs> in addition to sort of trying to spend a lot of time tr- trying to convince the analytic philosophers that it was okay to, to want to do a feminist project. And for those, for those who, who, who may not be aware about that, that how, how interesting that statement is, Kant is a very, not only an interesting character, but work is not so easy to understand. So for you to do this on your own <laughs> is, yeah, that was... is a feat within itself. <laughs> well, I think in part, but again, I, I, I keep coming back to this as a kind of theme. Like, I think, I think I've been able to have the career I've, I've been able to have, and I've been, been able to have sort of come, like, you figure out the ideas or come to the arguments that I have in part because of this, of this kind of unusual trajectory, right? You know, like, um... Uh, feminist philosophers uh, talk about standpoint epistemology. One of the lessons of that is that there are these, um, there are things that people at the margins of society are going to be able to know better or differently than people at the center. And I think in part, like I'm, I'm a testament to that, right? So um, because I um, uh, was teaching myself Kant, you know, sort of immersing myself in the secondary literature, I didn't have anyone telling me, no, 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 that's a blind alley. There's no point going down there, right? right. Because, we, you know, um, and so like, I, it, it meant that I went down a lot, of, a lot of blind alleys and spent a lot of time spinning my wheels. But it also meant that I think that I, I found things or I figured out new ways to, to, to think about Kant or use Kant that I, maybe I wouldn't have had I had um, someone, you know, like a, an advisor or even like just someone teaching a class telling me, okay, this is how we understand this stuff. So um, it, 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 it did not make for an easy ta- easy road, but I do think that it allowed me to find things that I might not have found.
So, so let's talk a little bit more about feminism. Your latest book is Think Like a Feminist. I want to say thank you so much for writing this book. I'm currently, you know, using it in my course. And I kind of feel as a result of that, this is a selfish conversation. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure that lots of people are going to benefit it. But I'm also grateful because I love the book. Um, and, it's, and it's so become much. a wonderful resource and my students love it. Um, so let's, just, let's get into some of the ideas discussed in the book. So, you know, if you're going to write a book about feminism, you start off kind of defining what it is, right? So you, you define feminism by laying out what feminists are likely to agree with, right? You, you recognize there are some differences there, but you lay out what they're likely to agree with. What are those agreeances? Sure, sure. So I, I'm drawn to a really pretty broad big tent definition because I think any movement that's going to claim to speak to the experiences of like half the people on the planet is going to have to be fairly broad and nonspecific because, you know, women have very different lives depending on their other material circumstances. So I'm drawn to this right. really pretty general uh, definition. But it goes like this, basically. I, I, I like to say that you count as a feminist if, number one, um, you agree with the scientists and the historians and the people who aren't philosophers and the people who aren't making these moral or political claims. Um, or at least not explicitly, right? So these people say, basically, by every metric that we have to determine quality of life, women don't do as well as men, right? And so, of course, there isn't just one way to measure whether our human life is going well. There, there, there has to be a lot of different like different ways we would approach a question like that, right? So we could ask, you know, well, well how healthy is someone? How wealthy are they? How, how likely are they to see people like them represented in their culture as people who are valuable? Right. Uh, how, how likely are they to be able to participate in the political process or have autonomy over how their lives go? Right. Like um, we could even just go something like subjective reports of happiness. Right. We could ask, you know, like we could just ask, how well do you think your life is going? Right. Um, you have to be careful with that one because there's there's this cool philosophical puzzle called the problem of, of adaptive preferences. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically the thought is that the better off your life is, the sort of like, or, or other thought is like people get accustomed to um, a certain level of, of resources. And if then they're then deprived of it, they experience that as really, really problematic as a loss, right? Whereas if they've never, if, if someone has never had had that much stuff, they don't experience it as a problem, right? So the example I like to use is the first time someone goes camping, right? Um, I mean, they've got their cushy sleeping bag and their fancy tent and they've got all, all, you know, all, the, all the gear and you're, and you're lying there in the tent and you're like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. I've got my fancy camping mattress and I feel every pebble and like, oh my God, this is horrible, right? Because you miss, you, you miss your soft, fluffy bed at home, right? Um, but meanwhile, of course, most people on the planet would be thrilled to have a, a, a setup as cushy as, you know, your, as your camping setup, right? So if you were to give them all this, all this gear and say, how comfortable are you? They'd, be, they'd say, oh, this is, the, this is the height of luxury, right? And so we can't just look at, you know, sort of objectively how resources are distributed, um, or rather how, how you feel about uh, how many resources you have, because, because people kind of become accustomed to how much they have, right? So um, even something like subjective reports of happiness can't be the only way we measure how well someone's quality of life is, but it doesn't matter, right? There are lots of different ways to do it. And basically by every single metric that we have to measure quality of life, women don't do as well as men historically mm -hmm. and today across cultures. And again, this isn't, this isn't the philosopher talking. This is the, this is the social scientist talking, right? This is the historian talking, right? Um, so you're feminist if you agree with those folks, right? If you, if you agree with the facts, right? And then the second, uh, the, the second part of the definition is that, um, then this is where the philosophy comes in. You're a feminist if you think that those facts that the historians are giving and the, and the social scientists are giving us, if you think that those facts are a bad thing that can and should be changed. Right. So again, so if you think that, well, yeah, it's true. Women don't flourish as well as men, but that's because they're kind of inferior beings. I mean, this is what Aristotle thought, right? We're just kind of like right. defective men. Right. <laughs> so of course we're not going to do as well. We're like, we're, we're broken. Right. So, if, so if, if you're not Aristotle, right. If you think you know, men and women really are kind of like fundamentally uh, equal, then, um, 
then you th- th- then you think that okay, it's it's a problem that um, women don't do as well as men, and we sh- and we can and should like it's not inevitable. We should try to do something about it. Um, so those are the sort of the two major planks. I insist on adding one third plank, and that has to do with a kind of a methodology that is sort of a, of a hard learned lesson of feminism's historical failures. Right. And so the way to think about this is to sort of realize that um, you have to understand that justice doesn't trickle down. Just like trickle down economics has been proven to, you know, to, to be a you know, flawed economic theory. So too right. for justice. Right. You, uh, you can't claim to be interested in justice and focus only or primarily at on the people at the top and expect that if you make things better for those women, that somehow everything's just going to work itself out for, for everyone else. That's just not how it works. And again, uh, and one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is the, the, is the historical failure of the feminist movement to really, really understand this, right? This is the, you know, this is the lesson of, of, of the third wave of feminism. Feminists like uh, Bell Hooks and Kimberly Crenshaw pointing out that feminists have, for a long time had been um, centering the experiences of a real, very privileged group of women. The boogeyman that I focus a lot on in the book is Betty Friedan, because I think she's representative of a kind of intellectual tendency that we see in a lot of the history of feminism, which is uh, white, educated, wealthy, straight, um, cis women pretending that their experiences of oppression are uh, sort of sort of central, like their experience of what it is to be a woman is kind of the central experience. And all other women's experiences are kind of like derivative from that central female experience, right? And so it's really important, I think, for, for feminists now to really sort of take take on board the lessons of intersectionality that we get from these feminists of color um, and understand that um, we need to stop making these same mistakes and we need to sort of really center the experiences of women at the margins. And by at the margins, I mean just women who, who don't have the kind of, who often don't have the kind of social or political power to have their concerns listened to. So all of this sounds good to me. All of this sounds tenable to me. All of this sounds right to me. But you know that feminism has a PR problem. Yes. And I want to get at the cause and nature of this PR problem. So it's interesting because you call the first chapter the F word. and you call, yeah. So you call feminism the F word for a reason. So what PR problem does this F word have? Sure. So, um, yeah, I like to I like to say that, you know, if I had a dollar for every time I heard someone say I'm not a feminist, but and then go on to say a bunch of feminist stuff like I could solve the wage gap single handedly. Right. <laughs> right. So it's but it's true that, you know, there's um, despite this definition that I've given that it really doesn't seem like it would be that hard to, to get behind. A lot of people might be drawn to the lessons of feminism, but really, really, really kind of wary of, of, of the label. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think some of them some of them have to do with feminists themselves. I think maybe we could do a little bit better job at sort of explaining to, to, to regular folks what feminism is about. And in part, that's one of the reasons that really, one of the reasons I was really motivated to write a book like this. Um, but I think the big problem isn't to do with feminists, it's to, it's to do with the culture that we're fighting against. And basically my thought here is that the status quo is really good at, rep- at, at, at reproducing itself, right? Um, and feminism really does represent a massive threat to the status quo, right? And so I think a feminist got got their way, things really would change. And I think we've seen that. I mean, feminists have been getting our way for generations now and things are changing. And to my mind, they're changing for the better. But to people with a certain uh, conservative or, or regressive worldview, I mean, the, hell, the, you know, the world is going to hell in, in a handbasket and feminists are in large part to blame, right? You know, you see the demise of the traditional nuclear family and you see the skyrocketing divorce rates and all these sorts of things. And to a certain kind of person, this is, this is really sort of threatening to their worldview and to their sense of how society needs to be in order for people to flourish. So yeah, so I think people are predisposed to think poorly of, or, or at least be very skeptical of feminism because they rightly recognize that that 
that we're threatening, right? Um, that we're, that we're, we're coming for you, right? Because I don't like, I, as a feminist, something like a skyrocketing divorce rate doesn't bother me if, if that means that <laughs> we have a bunch of, you know, people who are living lives that are free, right? right, and, right. and meaningful to them, right? Things like that. It's interesting because as much as you say, and you acknowledge that feminism has a PR problem um, in relationship to the culture that we live in, it, it, it made me think about what PR problem, or P, well, more specifically, what PR advantage does oppression have? So what, what do you think? I mean, you, you, oh you spend God. some time it's... talking about oppression in the book. Do you think oppression has a PR advantage? Yeah, oh, totally. A, a subtle one. Definitely. Uh, I think like, we're, like I think I think it's a serious home like home court advantage here that we're talking about, right? Because oppression is the status quo, right? We live in a world that is massively um, oppressive, both um, uh, for women, for people of color, for LGBTQ people, for uh, for disabled people, um, you know, for for people uh, depending on their on, on their socioeconomic class, right? The world is structured in a way so that a certain very small percentage of people have a vast majority of the, of the, the material resources and the power to sort of you know set our cultural agenda. So there's just a kind of inertia behind that in some ways, I think that this is just, this just feels like the way that well, this is just the way things are and the way they always, they, they always have been and the way they always should be. And so changing that, right. Uh, you know, as, as feminist gadflies who are, you know, over there saying, Oh no, this is, this is not how it should be. Maybe it's not as good as we think it is. Right. Um, that, that, that can be hard for people to want to hear or want to listen to, but I think it's also really important. You could have named this book anything, and you specifically named it Think Like a Feminist. So so what does it mean to think like a feminist? Why is it important to think like a feminist? And what are some ways to do so? Nice. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the title I... Um, I have to confess, the title um, was uh, suggested to me from by the by the folks at Norton. I was really really happy by it <laughs> or happy with it um, because and, and so I think what, one of the things they were really trying to do was sort of bring out that this is a this is feminist philosophy, right? Because feminist theory sort of pops up in a lot of different places in the academy and in activism, and so we really wanted to kind of emphasize that that, that I'm focusing on the philosophy, right? Because this really is my wheelhouse. Um, but that said, I think that what the the lessons that we get from feminist philosophers in particular, I think, is um, or at least the way the way I like to read it, um, I think that what it is to think like a feminist is to be always attentive to the power dynamics that are going on um, in individual interactions in society at large, and to really be be, be, be attentive to the ways that um, a lot of this stuff is really subtle. Like it's not necessarily really obvious, right? So one of the so one of the things I do in the book is I introduce the concept of, of oppression using four metaphors. Because I think that it's um, sometimes it's it's easier to get at the stuff with metaphor than it is to sort of try to tackle the jargon straight on, right? And so what, one of the central metaphors that I focus on comes from the feminist philosopher Marilyn Fry, and she says, okay, so you're trying to understand what feminists are talking about when they, or, or anti or anti racists or anyone else, but what they're talking about when they when they say that you know the oppression is this sort of structural and systemic harm, right? Like what the hell does that mean, right? And so Fry says, well, think about it like this. So say that um, say you're looking at a bird, right? And this bird is just like failing to thrive. Right, it is sickly. Right, it is just like it's, it's it's all dirty and its feathers are falling out and it's kind of starving. And like there's a pile of bird seed like just sitting right in front of it, and the bird isn't even bothering to go and like feed itself. And you're like, what the hell is wrong with you, bird? Right, you cannot for the life of you figure out what's wrong with this bird. Okay? So then you step back, right, just a little bit, right, because you've been like right up in the bird's face trying to figure out what's wrong with it. Um, and you step back just a bit, and you um, you realize that oh, there's a wire in between the bird. And the bird and the bird seed. Like it's not like electrified wire. It's not razor wire. It's just a wire, just plain old wire, right? But it explains why the bird isn't walking right straight in front of it to get the bird seed because it would run into that wire. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, 
But seriously, bird, you're going to let one measly wire get between you, what you and what you need to live. Like, come on, mm-hmm. ever hear of a thing called grit, bird? You know, pull yourself up, right, pull your right. bird bootstraps. You know, get the seed, right? Um, so, you, but then you step back just a little more, and you realize, oh, it's not one wire; it's actually two wires, and they're connected, right? So, those two wires together actually are capable of blocking off a much wider path that then than other one by itself would have been. But again, it's just two wires, right? So then you step back a little more and you realize it's not two wires, it's three wires, it's four wires, it's five wires, it's dozens, it's hundreds of wires. And you realize, ah, the bird is in a birdcage, right? All of these wires are connected up. They're interrelated. Any one of them by themselves, not like it's just a minor setback, right? It's like, you know, like water off a duck's back, right? But collectively, they completely determine what's possible for that bird. Mm. Right? They, they, they completely explain why that bird is failing to thrive, right? And so this is... um. I think a really, really powerful way to sort of start understanding the kind of messages that feminists and other anti-oppression theorists are talking about when we're talking about the kinds of harms that we want people to pay attention to, right? I think so often we're used to thinking about things uh, in terms of just individual responsibility and individual harm, right? Especially in, 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 in the American con- uh, context where we love us, our individualism, right? And um, so I think that um, a metaphor like this is really good for, for, for starting to realize that the kinds of harms that feminists are talking about um, the way we're, we're approaching this is that when, when, when we're talking about things that might seem like they're not that big a deal, things like, you know, like, well, the, the wage gap or, you know, rape culture or, or but, you know, just like the, the lack of pants with functional pockets in most women's fashion, right? Or the fact that it costs us twice as much to, to dry clean the same damn shirt or, you know, all of these or like a cat call or whatever these things, like they might seem like either by themselves, not that big a deal or like just, you know, like not really something that's worth getting that upset about. It's because these, when feminists are talking about these things, they're always talking about them as with the understanding that we're talking about them as how they're related to all these other things that feminists are mm. also talking about, right? You, you, you need this big picture in order to understand the kinds of harms that, that, that we're focusing on here. And um, yeah, so I think what it is to sort of uh, think like a feminist is, is to sort of start realizing that um, these harms don't happen in isolation, right? And then, and, and that when we're, we're trying to figure out how these harms function, we, we need to have that big picture in mind. I like this analogy. So I'm going to admit, this is where I'm going to get a little bit selfish here. So this was controversial yesterday in my race and gender class. I'm going to tell you why it was controversial. It's not the analogy that was controversial. Uh, One of my brilliant and bold students, um, you know, kind of talked about, okay, if this is, okay, this is a description. This is an analogy of oppression. And the question was asked among the students, yeah, but what's the role of responsibility? Right. You know, is is it possible for for us to still, you know, admit that oppression exists, but necessarily don't admit that we are oppressed because we're making decisions. Right. We're control of our lives. Right. We don't have to be so ensnared. So what what would you say to a question, a question like that? So as much as people may be describing and you're simply suggesting that, hey, women are that bird. Right. Black Mm -hmm. people perhaps are that bird. Mm -hmm. Are they doomed? I mean, you talked about use the phrase determined. Are they so determined? Right. Um, or is it simply can they be released um, through a kind of free will of, of sorts or decision making of sorts? Yeah. So um, I think um, a nice way to come to, to, to come because I, I think because I think this is a fair question. Right. Again, it's like, I think sometimes the left gets kind of painted as this kind of like victim culture where we want to just pretend that everyone's just, you know, trapped in these forces that are completely determining their lives. And we know that's not true. Right. We know that there's a ton of room for agency, you know, in everyone's lives for the most part. Right. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's worth kind of emphasizing that. So the way I like to think about this, I use another metaphor. This one comes from okay. anti-racist scholar named Peggy McIntosh. 
right? And so Macintosh uh, talks about having like an invisible back, backpack. So she's a white woman like me, right? She talks about what it's like to um, sort of navigate the world um, with this like invisible backpack full of like maps and code books and blank checks and like, you know, references and uh, all of the tools that you need to sort of like navigate the world. I sort of like to think about it as like a fully stocked iPhone with all the apps you might ever need or something, right? Um, <laughs> Macintosh was, was, was writing before iPhones. But, um, <laughs> but, but the thought here is that it's just, it's just easier. It's just easier to make your way through the world if you have the stuff that you need in order to navigate that world, right? And Macintosh points out that for white people, that's that's really what we have, right? So like we have, like, so as, as a white person, right, I can, um, I can, you know, like go out shopping and buy band-aids that match my skin or dolls that match my daughter's skin, right? I can, um, I can you know, open, you know, open my computer and see people like me represented in positive lights, right? I can, um, I can get behind the wheel of my car and speed a lot and no one's going to pull me over because I'm, because <laughs> I'm not driving while black. Right. Um, I like to sometimes joke that I that I should probably um, bolster my, um, my 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 professor salary with a side gig as a drug mule, right? Because nobody's gonna go on a night nice a nice white lady's purse, right? Like I'm fine, right? You have no idea what's in my purse, people, right? Right. right. Um, and so the thought here is, is that, like, of course, like I can still choose to, you know, to like overcome adversity or to, to, to do what I can to overcome adversity or, you know, to, you know, to, to make the most out of my life. But I don't want to pretend that or um, that my like that, that when I when I experience an adversary, uh, uh, that it's as bad for me as it is for someone who has a hell of a lot of fewer um, tools in her backpack because society isn't made by or for people like her. Right. So I'm thinking of, say, someone who's um, a woman of color, someone who's visibly queer, someone who's visibly disabled, these sorts of things. Right. So it's just it's so that's, uh, it, I, I, compl I completely take the point that obviously we, we shouldn't minimize the role of agency, because I think that like we're not in part, we're not going to get out of these oppressive harms unless um, the unfortunately, unless oppressed people themselves keep on fighting. Right. And honestly, that was that was like one of the central lessons of my first major project, right? my first academic monograph. I argued that people who are oppressed have a duty to themselves to resist their own oppression. Right. So I'm completely on board with that stuff. And I, and I want to do everything we can to sort of like foster the agency of people who find themselves in impressive circumstances. But at the same time, I don't want to pretend that all you need is, you know, is, is, is enough determination and you could pull yourself by, up by your bootstraps and you'll be fine because we know that's not true. Right. Like I like to tell my students, I love my students at UMass Lowell. They're um, a lot of first generation college students like I was. You know, looks coming from a lot of uh, like uh, a lot of socioeconomic backgrounds. A lot of them not all that well to do. Um, and so I always tell them, I, I say, hey, listen, I can tell you, I um, I can tell you how much money you're 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 gonna make over the course of your life. And they're like, what? Mm. Really? I'm like, yeah, no, I can tell you with like like pretty pretty robust certainty how much money you're gonna make. You want to know? They're like, yeah, hell yeah, I want to know. I'm like, I only need to know one thing. You got to tell me one thing about you, and I can predict with very 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 high certainty how much money you're gonna make. And they're like, yeah, shoot, tell me. Right? Okay. I'm like, okay, just tell me how much money your parents earn. Mm. Right. And I see their faces fall. Right. Because that's why they're at university. Right. Because they've, they've bought mm -hmm. into this myth, this dream. Right. That college is the way out. That, that, that they're not going to be, you know, working these, you know, like multiple data on jobs like their parents have had to do to get them to college. Right. The whole point is that like college is, is their ticket out. And it's true that college will be there will be the ticket out for many of them. But it's also true that statistically speaking, um, how much money you earn is is basically going to be determined by how much money your parents earn. In, in this country, because th th that's how, you know, privilege reproduces itself in a country like this, right? So I, I like, I, again, so I'm all for sort of like doing everything we can to boost the, boost the, the autonomy and the sense of agency of people who are oppressed, but I also don't want to be blind to the realities. Right, right. So we talked about thinking, now let's talk about doing. 
so, so I, I like the, 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 the latter half of your book in which you explain, you know, some ways in which we can do some things. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of repeat some of that stuff for you to go into more explanations. So how do you talk to your kids about feminism? So I think a lot of it's just, it's, it's about sort of us first being aware of the really subtle ways that we, um, that we push gender norms on our kids and sort of giving them a chance to sort of do something else, right? So I, I like to point out that so often um, the first thing that you say when, you, when you're talking to a little girl, what's the first thing you say? You say, oh, I love your dress. It's so pretty. Oh, that's so pretty. Oh, you're, oh, you're beautiful, right? What do you say to a little boy? You say, oh, is that a dino on your shirt? Do you like dinos? Do you like rocket ships? Do you like bugs? What do you like doing, right? And so we're sending this really, really subtle message. We're not intending to, but we set, we're sending this subtle message that to little girls that the most important thing about you is what you look like. Right, and to little right. boys, we're telling, we're sending them the message. The most important thing you, you do uh, about you is what you do, how, how you interact with the world, right? So we're sending this message, whether, whether we mean to or not, um, that you know that we have these gender norms, these ideas about uh, about what's supposed to be important to them as, as kids and then as, as adults. And I think one of the things we could do is just to sort of start undermining that, right? So I so when my daughter was young, I just I just I banned the word pretty from the house. Like you cannot call this, 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 because I have friends and family who want to call her pretty because she's a pretty kid because all kids are pretty, right? You know? um, <laughs> right? And I just said, no, so like, we think, like, so we yeah, like right, to exactly, think. exactly, right? But like, fine, but it turns out that when push comes to shove, like people can usually find other adjectives to tell you how cute your kid is, right? And I just, I just didn't want her, that to be the only message that she was getting, right? And so I, um, and so too, I like, I, I really tried to shield her from like the princess porn stuff, right? Like all the Disney stuff and whatnot, mm-hmm. because I felt mm-hmm. like this is just such a, such a sledgehammer of a message that like, comes down down on girls. Um, and the funny thing there is I think what I, I actually in it ended up inadvertently sending her the message that there's something wrong with femme presenting women. And I'm, I'm a femme. And, <laughs> and so I think like, I was just so like, I, I wouldn't let her watch me put on makeup. Cause I'm like, no, I don't want you seeing mm-hmm. this. Right. Like, um, like, cause this is, this is mama shit. I don't want you, I don't want you like, ha- like, like having to get sucked into this. Um, and so in a, in a, in a, now she's eight and she's like, you know, like insisting on like never, ever wearing pink or purple. And she's got this kind of like cute little punk style where she only wants to wear black and she shops in the boys section most of the time. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, it's cute and great, but I'm like that backfired. Cause I think what in part, what I've, what I've inadvertently done is told her that there's something wrong with people who mm-hmm. are drawn to really sort of like, um, uh, with conventional representations of femininity, which was not what, not what I wanted to sort of, you know, sell her. But it, it, yeah, it, all of which is to say like, this stuff is hard. This is complicated. Right. It's, there aren't easy answers, but you know, we do our best. So that's, that's children. You also end the book by laying out some practical steps for men. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay them out in turn. And I'm gonna ask you to explain exactly <laughs> what you mean, right? And I get the sense you're, you're talking about heterosexual men here. Yeah. Um, so, so here's the first one. You say get better at flirting. Yeah. How can this help them think like a feminist? <laughs> so here I'm leaning on the work of a great philosopher, Bonnie Mann, and um, Bonnie Mann has this great article where she talks about um, how flirting. Because again, there's a stereotype that you know feminists are these sort of like joyless, you know, harpies who hate sex and whatnot, and you think, and you know, they hate like all, and like you know, real, true, hot sex, especially in the straight context, involves all this kind of like ambiguity and like you know like power dynamics and feminists are just anathema to all that. That's why, you know, they're just these, you know, sexless, awful, you know, harpies. Right. So I think against this stereotype, man is really good at sort of pointing out that no feminine, like feminist flirtation is possible, but it requires a really, like, it requires attentiveness to the, to the power dynamics involved. Right. So if, if you're a straight man, you have to recognize that we live in a culture that gives you massive amounts of power over the woman that you're flirting with. 
right? And um, and if you're gonna, if you're going to be a feminist about flirting, um, you you can't be blind to that. You have to sort of recognize that society has given you the upper hand, and you really can't be a dick about that, right? You have to right. like really sort of recognize the power that you have and not exploit it, not use it to your advantage, right? So what this ends up looking like is really just being patient, really like just not not forcing yourself on her. So the example that uh, that that man gives, and I love this. Um, is um, the, uh, the the interaction between Brad Pitt and Gina Davis and that old movie Thelma and Louise? Such a great old movie, and um, yeah. So there's and it's like the movie is problematic in some ways, but in some ways it's just it's just a fabulous feminist movie, and in part it's fab- it's fabulous because we see right um, a, a, a situation that it, in some ways it's, it's very sort of conventional heterosexual like sexual encounter, right? The sexual dynamic is is, is very very straight, um, but Brad Pitt is just kind of like patient. And willing and like it's just very clear that like he's like he's he's conveying to Gina Davis that like her like she she gets to be the one to decide how far things go, right? And they end up having like this like you know fantastically steamy sex and everything else. It's wonderful, right? But it, but there's a kind of patience and respect that you see in it. But it's still like super sexy, right? Um, so things like that, yeah. So I think it, again, just in general, for uh, you know, a, a, a straight guy who wants to flirt, you, you do it in a way that you recognize that you that society has unfairly given you the upper hand in that and you have to be willing to, to to give that up and that looks like you know being willing to be rejected right being willing mm. to to not get what you want which is you know mm-hmm. laid <laughs> right right I'm, I'm thinking about asking this question and i'm gonna be mad if i don't so what shouldn't a man say in the dms oh god I don't know. It's been a minute since I flirted with straight dudes. Um. <laughs> just, just, you don't have to answer. I just, I just really wanted, wanted to ask it. So, so, so how about, here's the other, the other thing you, you suggest. He says, forget about chivalry. Yeah. Yeah. Explain. So, and again, right. So again, with straight guys, I think there's this sort of sense that, no, no I'm just being respectful, right? My mama taught me to be chivalrous. Like she, she'd lose her mind if, you know, if she found out that I wasn't, if I wasn't being respectful to women in these, in, in these ways. And I kind of want to say, no, no, like your mama wasn't teaching you to be chivalrous. She was teaching you to be respectful, or at least I hope she was, right? Um, and, th- and there's a big difference, right? Because like, I'm a Canadian, right? Like Canadians, like we, like I, I'm pretty sure that like opening the door for someone is like written into our charter of rights and freedoms, right? It's like, it's, it's just, it's central to our, to our identity is that you, you open the door for someone, right? So when I, as a Canadian, I moved to the United States and I, I, I realized that there, there, there are different door opening norms here, right? So, um. So it'd be things like, like there were a couple times where I actually like walked into a door because there was a woman ahead of me and I assumed that she was going to hold the door open for me and she didn't. And I just like walked into the damn thing. Right. But at the same time, men were always really good about still opening my doors. Right. And I'm like, so is this like, like a weird, you know, like are these women being bitchy or mean? I'm like, no. And then I realized, oh no, the men aren't holding the door open for me because they're being polite. They're holding me the door, the door open for me because they're being chivalrous. And I noticed, mm-hmm. right, that when I would hold the door open for people, because again, as a Canadian, you're required to hold the door open for people. Um, like we, we really are that polite. It's a stereotype for a reason, right? Um, and I realized that like there would be some men who would not go through the door that I was holding open for them. And like, no, I, know, I, I insist you first. I'm like, why? I'm holding the door open for you. Go through the damn door, right? And then right. I realized, holy shit, all this time I thought you were just being polite. You weren't being polite. You were being chivalrous. Fuck that. No, no. Right? And so then I would get into these like battles of will in the hallway in grad school. I remember this, right? And it's like, no, you go first. No, really, I insist. You go first, right? Um, because again, the thought is that the message behind chivalry isn't I'm being polite and holding the door open for you. The message behind most many chivalrous gestures are you're weak and frail and need me to do things for you, right? And these are useless gestures, right? Like, you know, women wouldn't need men to, like, hold the door open for them or, um, 
Like, you know, let them walk on the inside of the street or, you know, pick up the pick up the tab when you go out for dinner. If, you know, the wage gap didn't have us making less money than them. And if our fashion wasn't more expensive and less practical, so we need to be protected from traffic filth or like whatever it is. Right. So the thought is that like chivalry um, is this message of like false respect. It's like lipstick on a pig. Right. It, like it, it, it's it, 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 it's it's masquerading as respect, but it's not really respect. Right. So I, I always like to say if, if you're having trouble telling the difference, but whether a gesture is chivalrous or respectful, just ask yourself whether you would act differently if someone's gender expression was different. And if you would act differently, well, then it's chivalrous. Then don't do that. Right. But if, if you would if you if, if you would do it for, for anyone, no matter what, well, then, yeah, you know, be polite. I'm a Canadian. I think we should all do this. So we, we've been we've been talking about heterosexual men. So I, w- I want to go into a queer space. So I was talking to some friends about a, a book that recently came out. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to give the argument. I give the, the solution. Um, uh, that's the implication from the argument. And the solution, basically, the, the argument is, hey, hey, there's a problem with heterosexuality. Yep. And if straight men really want to do better uh, with, with treating you know straight women, they perhaps need to talk to a lesbian. So I'm listening to this and I'm a lesbian. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm a work in progress every day. I don't know if I want to be holding workshops, right? Because it, you know, to really think think like a feminist, I have to think think like a feminist. Reframe my thinking, get it better every day. Yeah, right. Um, so so even being a woman doesn't necessarily mean that I am a 100% good feminist, never a bad feminist at all. And being a lesbian also doesn't mean yeah. that I'm 100%. Oh no, and yeah. and. <laughs> And I, and I guess There's I, I would also in the lesbian community. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah for sure. Hence <laughs> yeah. my question, right? Yeah. So how can how can lesbian women? I mean, I'm not telling you to give me a full worked out book here. Do better um, with not internalizing the uh, the the oppression and and the sexism um, that is experienced in a heterosexual community into yeah. in, into those particular relationships. Because I don't think it's just it's not just heterosexual men, right? we can, you know, duplicate those kinds of activities and yeah, lesbian no, I, and queer and queer relationships. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I have to say, so I, um, I, um, I came out as queer a couple of years ago after I was in the process. I, I, you know, before that I was living in kind of like, you know, straight life. I wasn't straight, but everyone, I, I looked straight, right. I was like living in the suburbs, married to a dude. Um, and then I got divorced and, um, I'm now with a trans man. And I have to say that like, it had been a while since I'd spent a lot of time in queer spaces, right. Probably since mm-hmm. college. And, um, I'm now like, you know, out as a femme in queer spaces. And I really kind of like, like rattled me a bit to sort of realize that like, like the um, people patronize you, the way the people don't take, take you seriously, the way, the way that people f- fail to respect you, all of that stuff that, that, I, that I was used to sort of experiencing in straight circumstances. And I'd sort of built up various armors for it in, in, in the straight world. I had to like sort of rejigger my armor for the, for the queer world, right? Because I was experiencing mm-hmm. many of the same things that I was sort of like, but, but, but that's not supposed to happen here, right? But it still does, right? right. right? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that the, the lesson is just to sort of really kind of recognize when we in the queer community are just um, taking on those aspects of the straight world that we take ourselves to really be opposed, opposed to. But yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. Your book was enjoyable. And yet heavy at times. And I imagine uh, that you are perhaps emotionally exhausted after writing it. Perhaps the cursing made you feel a little bit better. You know, (laughs) you were able to release your frustration in the text. But but I wonder, I wonder after writing a book um, uh, of such a matter, what did you do to decompress? So again, like I have to say, I wrote this book during a time in my life that was the things were just like, like my life was a blender. It was just um, like I was going through a divorce. I was um, 
it was a mess. And so I think for me, it was really interesting as a writer, because before then, I really had been very kind of like regimented and like, like everything had to be just so in order for me to write, right? Like all of the conditions had to be just right. I was this horrible binge writer. I would, you know, like avoid it and do all my other, all my other work. And as an, as an academic, I'm sure you understand, like, <laughs> you know, you know, the allure of all the service work that you can do instead of your own damn writing and things like that. So I was horrible with all of that. I sort of storied myself as a writer where I could only write under very sort of very, you know, specific circumstances. And then my life just blew up. And um, hmm. I had this book contract and I needed to finish. It. And suddenly I found like, I could write anywhere. Right. I was like, I, I, like, I was like, like couch surfing. Right. And I'm like writing and I'm like, like living in Santa Fe and writing. And so I like, I wrote this book like at Burning Man and like on the beach in Italy and, like, in San Francisco. <laughs> and it really was this weird experience of like, oh, wow. It turns out like, I can actually write anywhere. Um, that, pre, that pre-pandemic book writing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I have to say, I think in some ways the decompression never happened because in part, my I think my life just kind of like stabilized a little bit. And then as it was stabilizing, the pandemic hit and then like, now we're all boring, but... <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned so let's talk a little bit more about books. You mentioned your 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 your, your academic monograph, yeah. and and I want to I want to kind of think about the writing process. I, I don't know if you were writing about Kant and resisting oppression on a beach. What different <laughs> joys, if any, did you get from writing and discussing this public book that was different from or even absent with? your previous academic book on resistant oppression. Yeah. So I think for me, I find this kind of writing much more gratifying. It's funny. I have like the, the, the projects that I've, that I've turned to after writing this have been the more conventional stuff I'm doing. I'm back in, 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 in Kant world. <laughs> and, and, and that's just really like, for, like when that works going well, it feels like a really, really awesome detective project, right? Like you have to like figure something out. It's like a puzzle to solve. And, and I really just enjoy immersing myself in secondary literature and finding out everything that everyone else has said about this. And then like really kind of like synthesizing that and finding it, finding a novel way to synthesize that and then like so it's a, it's a really kind of like careful satisfying like um a bit of detective work um when it's going well for me whereas the, whereas the public writing is much more storytelling right it's much more like okay so here's the idea but like what's the best way to lay this idea out what's the like what's the prettiest sentence i'm a sucker for i must i must I'm, I'm a complete pretty sentence whore i have to admit and so um <laughs> so for me it's like it's 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 just it, 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 yeah the, the experience of it is is very different and in some in some ways i think i kind of miss it but the the academic stuff has its has its charms but I, again i feel lucky to be able to do both you recently tweeted the following i'm i'm a quote i'm a quote your tweet okay you said uh, i miss dancing more than just about anything else the pandemic has taken. Uh, Tell us more about this. <laughs> oh my. What, what, kind of, what, what, what kind of dancing? Come on, tell, tell us more about this. Oh, how much can I tell you on a podcast in public? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I will say, I mean, yeah, so I don't know. I think I, I, I was living a very kind of conventional straight life. I think I, I remember at one point thinking um, cause I think like, I've always, I've always been so like, I don't like, I, I can't, like, I can't even salsa. I can't, I can't be like, I can't, I can't do like dancing with steps. I'm talking like clubs, right? Like with like sweaty bodies of naked strangers okay. pressed okay. up against you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have just, I've always loved that. I find it sort of like one of the most cathartic experiences there are. And I, just, I think I just, I never quite feel as fully alive as when I'm just doing that, right? Like you're just sort of transported out, outside of yourself and you just, it's just you and the music and it's, and, and, and all of these nameless, faceless strangers. It's wonderful. I think it's when I like humanity the best. And I just had stopped doing that. Um, right. And cause you know, I, I was living a grown up life like, in the suburbs and I remember sort of thinking, you know, I think maybe I'll never really probably get to dance again. It makes maybe at like weddings or something like that. That's, Oh, that sucks. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then my life flew up and it turns out that I, um, I have a lot more opportunities to dance <laughs> <laughs> and it's all to the good. So what, what is that song that hits in the club? 
where you're like, oh my God, it takes the dancing to the next level. Oh, damn. <laughs> Which one? Definitely like Beyonce's Drunk in Love is, is okay. yeah, that's, that's, that, that, that's going to get me out there. Um, Tudrick Hall, like the, the nails, hair, hip heels. That's that one. Yeah. God, I could go on. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. not fussy. I really like like Berlin techno. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Once the pandemic's over, I, I, I fully hope to be out there again. Well, Carol, thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I did too. Thank you for having me, Maisha. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.